Welcome to this podcast by the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. This podcast is entitled, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, and focuses on transitions between institutions. This podcast targets clinicians and researchers toward the end of their training or beginning of their post-training years. This is the first of a two-part podcast. This first podcast focuses on the decision of if and when to change institutions and important factors to consider. Join us for the second part of this podcast, released next month, that deals with the details of changing institutions, including the actual interview process and startup negotiations. Joining me today to discuss this is Dr. Jane Dang. Dr. Dang completed medical school at UCSF, then residency and pulmonary fellowship at the University of Michigan, was an assistant professor at UCLA until 2007, when she joined private practice with Kaiser for one year. She ultimately returned to UCLA and was promoted to associate professor. In 2016, she joined the University of Michigan, where she is now an associate professor and is section head of the pulmonary division at the Veterans Affairs Ann Arbor Health System. So Dr. Deng has had a diverse experience in medicine with a number of career transitions and is therefore well-suited to discuss many of these issues. Dr. Deng, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, to start, um, can you discuss with us your thoughts on the relative benefits of staying within uh, the institution at which you trained compared with the drawbacks? Sure. Um, so I actually have to give my friend uh, Dr. Borna Mayrod, who is now the division chief at the University of Florida Gainesville um, for this concept. But um, when I was making this decision at the end of my fellowship, he kind of broke it down in terms of whether or not he, I wanted to be more of a pioneer or more of a settler. So for a researcher, um, being a pioneer means that you are leaving the relative safety of your mentor's lab with its infrastructure and workflows and um, all the resources that you need to, to do the kind of research that you want to do, um, as well as all the people that you have established relationships with to, to help you with uh, whatever technique you want, and you're going to be going to a new institution um, where nothing potentially is set up for you and you have to start from scratch. Um, you have to figure out how to get all the resources that you need, um, both uh, physical resources as well as people, um, to help you with um, whatever it is that you're interested in doing at the new place. Um, but on the other hand, the advantage of that is um, that you are immediately seen as sort of your own entity. You have your own identity, um, you're the new person, um, and um, all the work that you do there, um, it's very easy to to see clear delineation of ownership of uh, whatever whatever you accomplish at your new place. Um, the advantage of staying at your current location or, or kind of what we call settlers is that you have the advantage of um, being in your mentor's lab um, and, again, being familiar um, with how things work, um, whether it's submitting protocols or um, figuring out how to get a particular assay performed. Um, but then the drawback is that sometimes it's very difficult to separate your identity from your mentor's identity um, and your ideas from your mentor's ideas. And people kind of tend to see you um, as sort of still being 
a fellow um, or a trainee for a longer period of time. Um, and so for that reason, it may be harder to gain independence. Uh, great. Thanks for that insight. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of examples and no real consensus where uh, one scenario is more likely to succeed than the other. And I imagine it's uh, very individualized. Um, but I'd be interested to hear uh, you share uh, your thoughts about how you made that decision about whether to stay uh, at your institution at which you trained. Sure. Um, so I'll be perfectly honest. When I made the decision, um, it was partially for my career, but it was also partially uh, for personal reasons, as I'm sure is often the case for, for many people when they're done with training. Um, usually what happens is that um, you've made a promise to your spouse that after so-and-so years of training here, I'm going to promise to move to wherever it is that you know you have family um, or into a different geographic location where um, perhaps you both agreed is, is better suited to your lifestyle. Um, and so for um, my husband and me, we had small children at the time. Um, we wanted to move to um, the place where I grew up, which was Los Angeles, and uh, where we had more family support. Um, and so it was partially personal, but then we also wanted to make sure that the job opportunities were in place for us to continue our careers. Um, and so for me, um, having UCLA as a strong pulmonary division um, was a huge plus. And um, having research mentors, um, because I was on a K-08 at the time, uh, was also um, a huge asset and a huge factor in uh, that we considered. If I didn't have a mentor in place, we frankly probably would have just stayed um, where we were, at least for the time being. Um, and so I think that um, a combination of good job opportunity as well as having personal reasons to move was really what drove my decision, uh, and our decision rather, to, to relocate to a new position. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's always uh, nice to hear, I'm sure, for the people that are listening, that there are other very real considerations that go into making these uh, major career transition decisions. So thanks for sharing with that. Um, I was wondering if you could comment if there are any considerations worth mentioning from a clinical standpoint about the advantages or disadvantages of staying or leaving your home institution? Yes, I think um, there are a few things I would say about um, from, a, from a clinician standpoint. Um, first of all is what sort of um, practice or clinical setting will you be moving to? Um, because to transition from one academic medical center in one part of the United States to a, another academic medical center probably isn't as huge of a, of a leap in terms of um, the, what your career looks like, but to transition from an academic medical center or a large training program to, say, a community practice, I think that for me was a bigger um, transition um, when I left UCLA to go to Kaiser, for instance, that was a far bigger transition than it was for me to go from University of Michigan um, to UCLA, if that makes sense. So I think that um, from, from a clinical standpoint, my feeling is that um, where you trained and the type of setting that you trained in, 
you have to be prepared that the new type of practice style will be very, very different. A community practice functions very differently from an academic training program. Um, I think the biggest tr- shock for me when I moved to the more of a community practice setting um, was I was so used to having experts and content experts to ask questions of because these were people that were publishing in in whatever disease condition I was interested in a- asking a question about, and I just didn't have those resources available to me um, in a smaller community um, group setting. So I think that uh, for me that was the biggest shock was um, not having um, experts in every, I guess, aspect of uh, clinical practice that um, I was used to in, a, in an academic medical center. That's good. Um, uh, just as a quick follow-up, uh, just to satisfy my curiosity, could you share with us what ultimately led uh, you back to academic medicine and out of private practice? Yes. Um, so I'm a curious person by nature, and so I think that for me, um, part of my decision to leave academia was driven by my curiosity to see whether or not I would enjoy full-time clinical medicine, um, at least, you know, maybe for a period of time, um, and because I'd always enjoyed being a physician. Um, and the answer to that is, yes, I, I could have continued being a full-time pulmonary critical care physician, and luckily my training had prepared me well for that, and I was um, able to, to perform the job. But what ultimately made me decide to go back into academia was, A, I missed the research aspect of um, my career way more than I had anticipated. Um, I missed the day-to-day ability to answer questions in the laboratory um, because as I was practicing, there was just so many other um, questions that I always had that um, I just, if I, was, if I stayed in clinical practice, I wouldn't have the opportunity to explore and investigate why things were the way they were. Um, and I think the other aspect of it from a, a personal standpoint is that there is a lot more, I guess, freedom in um, in an academic setting in terms of being able to set your work schedules and the type of work that you do that you just don't have when you're in a small group practice. Um, and so for me, um, again, trying to balance all the work and home life challenges was really important for me to have that flexibility ultimately. And so, um, so for several reasons, I um, decided that academia was really the right setting for me. We really appreciate you sharing that. I think your experiences will resonate with a lot of folks. Um, so moving on, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, share, uh, at what point in one's training timeline is it best to start considering doing job interviews? And uh, sort of as a follow-up to that, when would you say it's too early? I think that um, the best time to do interviews is when you are personally very clear about what it is that you are looking for. Um, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that I see um, graduating fellows make is sort of um, the what I call the fishing net uh, mistake 
you throw your nets out there at a lot of different jobs um, or positions, and you kind of see, well, what catches, right? Um, is it the clinical position that um, I get offered, or is it the research position I get offered? And I think it's really hard to interview well when you don't have personal conviction about what career path that you want to take. Now, there's nothing magical about the end of third year where you suddenly know, oh, this is exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, that just doesn't, that's not realistic, and that doesn't happen um, like that conveniently. So I think that one of the best things that a graduating fellow or even a fourth-year fellow can do before they interview is really do some soul-searching and decide what is it that you are interested in doing um, before you start doing interviews. So conversely, when, when is it too early to do an interview? Well, I think it's too early when you're not exactly sure what it is that you're looking for. So thanks for uh, commenting on that. Uh, as a quick follow-up to that, could you uh, give any particular advice to uh, those completing their fellowship uh, that have a particular interest in research uh, if, if you have any specific advice for them? Yes, I um, absolutely. I think one of the huge advantages I had when I was making the transition from University of Michigan to UCLA was um, I had a K-8 in hand when I started at UCLA. I think that being able to apply for your K successfully in the lab that you trained in is a huge plus. Um, I think that it is much easier to be able to apply for a K in your mentor's lab than it is to transition to a new place because there is always downtime whenever you, you make the leap from one institution to another. Um, just to take a very simple example, like for example, just even establishing animal protocols um, I always took it for granted because my mentor's lab always had animal protocols in place and I was just added to their protocol. But when I started at UCLA, I had to do that all from scratch, which delayed me by quite a bit. And then, then I could get my mice and then I could start doing the work. And so I think that is a trivial example, but if I was scrambling for funding and trying to get data at the same time, it would have created a lot of extra stress. So I do think um, if there's one piece of timing advice I can give people, um, it is to at least try to have um, a, some sort of funding in hand um, or at least be pretty darn close to, um, to you know, Funding your, your first grant, perhaps it, it needs to be revised, but hopefully the revisions are relatively minor, and then you can kind of resubmit um, and, then, and then move um, at, that, at that point. So that would be, um, I think, probably the, um, the, what I would urge fellows to consider when they are thinking about time frames. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Uh, thanks for that. Um, so to move on and to follow up from uh, your previous answer, uh, we, um, we all hear about the potential benefits of doing job interviews, even if we don't really necessarily have intentions of moving uh, institutions. And it sounds like from your previous answer, you should really be sure to have a good idea of the type of physician or the type of researcher you want to be before you go on these job interviews. 
but say you don't have true intentions of leaving, could you comment on the benefits of still going out to different institutions and doing the job interviews in and of themselves? Yes, I um, I agree with that. I, I do think that there is some advantage to visiting a lot of different places. Usually these job interviews are structured such that you get an opportunity not only to see how under, other institutions operate, but also you get to present your research um, or your clinical area of expertise and have other people know you. So I think from a networking and getting to know other people in the field is a really great opportunity to just meet people from different institutions and kind of seeing um, how they do things elsewhere. Um, I think that it can be very, you know, very valuable, especially if you're not well-versed um, in how things run, especially in other parts of the country even, because um, things do operate quite differently on the West Coast, say, compared to the East Coast, as an example. Um, and if you've trained largely in a, at a particular place, it also is helpful just for, for networking purposes. Um, so I do think that there is value in, in that part of, um, of looking around, so to speak. Um, I also think that um, the, when I say don't go on an interview until you know what you want, I think it's really just to hone your you know, to kind of force you to hone your own interests so that you're not looking at a bunch of um, different positions because I think that can come across during a lot of interviews that um, you're undecided. Um, and sometimes that can work against you if people hear, oh, he's looking at this job and that job, and ultimately you do find the job that you want, And uh, but people have talked because pulmonary is surprisingly a small world. People know people all over the place, and you just never know when someone may talk to someone else and, and hear, oh, he's looking at a job at your, at your institution to be a researcher, but then he also looked at a private practice job with us, and so that can sometimes um, get around and work to your disadvantage. Um, so that's just like a little you know, bit of warning. Um, so I, th I, I personally believe that you know, honesty and straightforwardness is sort of the best policy, um, obviously, and, um, you know, having conviction behind what you want to do um, is also really beneficial when you're, when you're looking around regardless. That's really great insight. I would, I would certainly say honesty um, and focus uh, really rings true through your statement uh, across the board, not only with these career transitions, but it's certainly a concept we hear over and over as far as grant writing as well. So I appreciate that. So to follow that up, uh, say a fellow is interested in a particular institution but may not have made uh, a solid contact to get an invitation. Uh, how would you advise that fellow to go about getting uh, an invitation to uh, a job interview at that institution? That's a great question. Um, there are actually several ways that come to mind. First of all, um, if you have received the right career advice, hopefully you know that at professional society conferences, those are valuable opportunities to network um, and really get to meet people at other institutions, including uh, fellows and faculty. And so hopefully you would have met some people um, through that avenue. 
But um, say you didn't have that opportunity and you are particularly interested in looking at Institution X, um, one of the things that can be very compelling is to write a very personal letter, cover letter, um, and send it to either the division chief and or the program director. Um, but I would say in most cases I would advise the division chief because they are ultimately the ones that um, make the hiring decision and just explain what it is that is driving you to pick their institution in particular, um, what are your areas of expertise, um, and it also helps to do your research to know what are their strengths, um, what are potential areas that um, they might be looking to recruit in, um, and um, that way to, to just um, get your foot in the door. And, and even if initially you don't get a response, um, I would also follow up. Uh, one other thing is you might ask around other faculty at your home institution whether or not they have contacts there. Again, you'd be very surprised at who knows whom at um, what institution. Maybe they trained together at an earlier stage in their life. Um, maybe they, they met um, or collaborated on some research project or a clinical project um, earlier. And so you'd be surprised at who knows um, who might know whom at other places. That's, that's really great advice. I'm really glad I asked that question. Just as a quick follow-up, um, with your initial contact, uh, do you think it's appropriate to include uh, sort of objective information uh, such as your, your KO8 score or other you know, pertinent um, uh, qualifying information that could uh, help get uh, div division chief's attention and make it more likely to accept your solicitation for a job interview? Absolutely. If you are fortunate enough to already have either a funded K08 or a K08 or K23 um, that is within striking distance of getting funded, that will definitely get a division chief's attention. Um, so I would definitely include that information. Um, and of course, you're going to be including your CV as well with hopefully um, a nice publication record. Um, and then one other thing to include on your CV is also any unique skills that you might possess, um, such as navigational bronchoscopies um, and or procedural skills um, or particular areas of expertise that you might have acquired during your fellowship training. Um, so I, th I think it doesn't hurt to include highlights of um, what makes you unique and what m makes you stand out um, on your, in your cover letter. Dr. Deng, thank you for your insights. This concludes the first of this two-part podcast. Join us next month for our discussion on the process of changing institutions, including interviewing and startup package negotiation.